Uh, take your Bibles. Go to uh, 2 Chronicles 33. While you're turning there, just to, I don't know if you're aware, with Christmas and the ramping up towards Christmas comes all of the advertisements for Christmas shopping, um, what you're supposed to buy your spouse that will actually like, be meaningful her, to her this year because everything else has just been a waste, evidently. All the Christmas movies, I mean, you got the newest Grinch coming out which I am reminded of every time the commercial comes on by my wonderful children. Hey, the new Grinch's coming out. A little passive-aggressive if you ask me, but that's all right. Grinch is one of my favorite movies. I mean, it is a classic, and I think it, it, it identifies deep for a number of reasons. I mean, you have this angry, evil, petty green thing uh, who's got a, a heart that's it's too small. We probably should go see a cardiologist, but... Um, he hates everything that has to do with Christmas. He hates everything that has to do with Whoville. And you're carried through the story, and at the end, what you see is this thing. I wouldn't call him a man, I guess. I don't know what he is, but you see this remarkable turnaround in his life where everything changes. And I think that's part of why that story resounds with our hearts, is because we see redemption in that story. We see a miracle happen, a Christmas miracle, but we see a miracle happen. I think that sets the stage for our king this morning, King Manasseh. If you were to ask anybody to describe King Manasseh, you would not get the end of the Grinch movie Grinch. You would get the beginning of the movie Grinch. He was a horrible human being. He was terrible. He was one of the worst people who, who is described in all of Scripture by his attitudes and actions, not just a rebellion, but just a brutality and cruelty. I find it interesting. Let me, let me read this to you. We're going to be in uh, chapter 33. I'll start reading in verse 1 in a moment. But I, just to set that up, I want to read this to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 18. So just hear this, okay? This is God's giving of the second law and what he is telling his people. He's giving them a warning what not to do. So listen to what the warning of God is and then listen as we read about Manasseh in just a second. God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when you enter the land the Lord your God's giving you, don't imitate the detestable customs of the nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. Practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. No, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. Pretty clear, right? I mean, it starts off with what I would think was a no-brainer. Don't sacrifice your children, Right? Can't mess that one up. There's no option C. A, yes. B, no. C, you know, there's situations. That's not, that's not even to be considered. But listen to the life of King Manasseh, starting in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. He reestablished the altars for the Baals. He made Asherah poles and he bowed in worship to all the stars of the sky and he served them. 
He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where my name will remain forever. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He passed his sons through the fire, that's child sacrifice, and Ben-Heman Valley. He practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. Manasseh set up a carved image of the idol which he had made in God's very temple. I'm going to just stop there. A basic recap is this. He did what was evil, a huge amount of evil, almost as if Manasseh was reading through the Old Testament to find out what things would tick God off the most. And then he did every single one of them. He is a horrible human being. He, as a leader of this country, he set up the high places for worshiping idols. He set up the actual idols of Baal and, and Asherah, the poles being a representation of the worship of these. He worshiped stars. He, he brought foreign altars into the temple, the place where God said, this is where my name is going to be for all time. He walked into the temple and brought an altar to a false god into that very place. He sacrificed his sons. Uh, the, the, the parallel to 2 Chronicles 33 is found in 2 Kings 21, and we're told there that Manasseh also shed much innocent blood, so much so that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. Sorcery, divination, witchcraft, mediums, Spirits trying to communicate with the dead. And all of these things were making God angry. And rightly so, right? But not only was he committing these heinous acts, he was leading other people into these heinous acts. Verse 9, Manasseh caused Judah and Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they didn't listen. So at this point, you have the children of God behaving worse than the enemies of God. And much of it having to do with their king leading them into that. But that being said, the people had an opportunity to do what's right. I just want to make sure I make this point before we move on. You have no excuse. It doesn't matter who your pastor is. It doesn't matter who your dad is. It doesn't matter who your president is. It doesn't matter who your boss is. No matter how you've been sinned against, no matter what's been done against you that you would consider wrong, you still have been given the opportunity to seek God in the middle of that chaos, even if nobody else does. God's calling his people to to holiness, and you can't blame anybody else for your lack of it. That being said, Manasseh's influence was a a key element in his people rebelling against God. Everything he was doing, they began to do. And finally, God had enough. You see in verse 10 that, that God spoke to Manasseh, God spoke to the people, but they wouldn't pay attention to him. They wouldn't listen. And God isn't someone you can simply ignore. So what God did was this in verse 11. He brought against them the military commanders, the king of Assyria. And they captured Manasseh with hooks. 
They bound him with bronze shackles, and they took him to Babylon. So when God intervenes, when God gets involved, what he does is he sends the military of the Assyrians under the king, and probably at this time the, the king for you history nerds is Ashurbanipal, probably, we think that's who it is. And, and when Ashurbanipal sends his soldiers in, they conquer the people, they take King Manasseh, and it says they carry him away with hooks. But we have historical documentation of the Assyrian Empire being very aggressive with things like this. And what they would do is when they conquered a people, they would take the leadership, they would take giant fish hooks and pass them through their nose. They would connect them to chains, and they would lead them about through the streets like a dog, simply to humiliate them. They shackled them. What are the shackles for? I mean, at that point, if you were being led around the streets with fish hooks through your nose and a chain, you really don't need shackles. It's a little bit overkill, I think. But the reality was, we are going to humiliate this man the best way we can, and so we're going to shackle both his hands and his feet and make sure that everybody knows he ain't going anywhere. And then the Assyrians did something that, if you're reading it at first blush and you know uh, geography in your history, it gets a little confusing. It says the Assyrians led Manasseh away, and they brought him to Babylon. Well, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. The capital of the Assyrian Empire was Nineveh. Why would they lead Manasseh to Babylon as a captive? Well, it's because of this. Babylon was under the control of Assyria at this time. And it's way more humiliating to take a conquered leader, not to the capital of your empire, but to some nation you've already overthrown. Because he's not that important. So Manasseh has been led to Babylon. And I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be frank with you. I hate that. I do that all the time. For you guests, my name is Frank. That makes more sense. On behalf of one, my name is Bill, but that's all right. The story should just end there. If you enter the emotion of all the evil that King Manasseh is doing, if you enter into this, the tension of knowing that he is leading his people into false worship, he's sacrificing children, he's committing acts of murder that is covering the entire city with bloodshed, when you enter into that, really in your gut you begin to feel this, oh, and, and, and he's carried away to Babylon, you almost get this little, like you watch an action movie, the action movie is only good when the bad guy loses, Right? And so the bad guy is brought away with hooks through his nose being traipsed through the city and people are just like, wow, that guy's a loser. And he's humiliated and he's carried away and we're all like, yes, good has prevailed. The story should end right there. What a horrible human being. What an evil man. We should just let's not spend any more time on him. Let's move on. Who's the next king? Let's just, just keep moving. Let's not stop. But the story doesn't end with him being carried away with fish hooks and shackles. For after he was carried to Babylon in great humiliation, verse 12 says this, when he was in distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God. And he earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him. And the Lord was receptive to his prayer. In this moment, it says Manasseh, sought the favor of the Lord his God, and earnestly humbled himself. What is that? 
In the middle of difficulty, in the middle of the tension, in the middle of the stress and the hardship, what Manasseh did was he sought the favor. That is the same as seeking the face of God. It is throwing aside everything else and looking to find where God's face is. I just want to go eyeball to eyeball. I just want to lay eyes on him. I want to find him again because right now I can't see him. So I am seeking his face. And it says he does it earnestly. That is with a whole heart, completely. There is nothing being held back. He is all in seeking the face of God, and he is doing it with humility. That word can be translated literally to bow, to fall in front of, to yield to. So so in this moment, after the stress and the distress has come into his life, Manasseh has gone from one of the most evil kings in all of history, one of those people that that we would actually, um, uh, as Americans, you look through our history, you've got a few of those who we had to stand against militarily, right? You've got Hitler, you've got uh, Saddam Hussein, you've got a number of Osama bin Laden, you've got all these different ones in there, and, and here, he is right up there with them, if not past them. And then suddenly, he's this humble puddle, just wants to see God's face. But was it just words? So let's be honest, let's translate this into our church culture. A lot of times, men, women, boys, and girls will come to church They'll come face to face with the darkness that is their soul. They'll hear about how they are to repent and pursue God. And in that moment, they may fall into a puddle of tears and cry out to God. And then walk out these doors, get in their car, and nothing's changed. Was this real? See, Manasseh's life, what happened was his life changed. His passions changed. His focus changed. Verse 14, after this... Oh, let me go back to verse 13, sorry. He, he prayed to God, and God was receptive to his prayer. So God granted his request. He brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem, back to his kingdom, and he came to know that the Lord is God. And after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David from west of Gihon in the valley to the entrance of the fish gate. He brought it around to the Ophel, and he heightened it considerably. He also placed military commanders at all the fortified cities of Judah. What you, what you see is a different activity coming out of Manasseh as soon as he gets home. See, the, the, the mark of a changed heart is a changed life. But Frank, I thought you said, uh, you've said this before in the gospel, it's simply believing in Jesus Christ. It's not about what you do, it's what's been done for you, right? Absolutely. But there's only one evidence of the fact that you truly believe that, and that you're, you start thinking differently, you start living differently, you begin to enact things that otherwise, outside of Christ, you never would have done. That's a sign. See, faith is a two-sided coin. It's both belief and repentance. It's a, it's a belief, it's a change of heart and a change of mind, but it's also a change of activity. And so here he goes back. And I, I know the first part doesn't seem like all that holy, right? He begins rebuilding the city again. In fact, it's a lessons learned that Manasseh does. He goes back and he rebuilds the walls. And in fact, he increases the height of them. So the next enemy that comes along can't just hop over the wall and take him out with fish hooks again. So he's being real careful. He's military improvements. He's restoring some of the things. He's placing military commanders. But here comes the the crux of the matter, verse 15. He, listen to the change in this man. He removed the foreign gods. He removed the idol from the Lord's temple, along with all the altars he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. 
He built the altar of the Lord and he offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. There is a remarkable change that has happened in this man's life. There is a total transformation that is occurring. When when he cried out with a heart of repentance, you understand that God didn't need to hear his prayer, right? Right? You understand that God didn't need to forgive him. God certainly didn't need to give him back his kingdom. I mean, it would have been well within God's um, um, boundaries to say, hey, you know what? I hear you, Manasseh. I forgive you, but you are going to die in Babylon. But instead, God brought him back to Jerusalem, gave him back his, his, his kingdom in, in this picture of unending, undeserved, unexpected grace. Um, I just want to be careful here. I'm not saying that um, there aren't consequences that remain when repentance is real. Too many times, I think, the puddle of tears that happens in the front here is crying out to be removed from the consequences of stupid choices we've made. God hearing your prayer and forgiving your, your, your sin does not mean he immediately removes all consequences. Verse 17 tells us that the people still sacrificed at the high places, not only to the Lord their God, but they were still sacrificing on the false altars. So there were still consequences in the lives of the people. There, there's still consequences in his family. If you continue reading, you read about his son Ammon who followed in his daddy's sin. There's still consequences that he can never erase. He cannot, no matter how hard he repents, he cannot restore the lives of those people he murdered. Even his own sons. But even with all those scars, Manasseh was able to enjoy God's undeserved favor. His kingdom was restored. And it says he came to know the Lord is God. So what that means is as thick as those scars may be, as prominent as they might be, as regrettable they may be, when Manasseh crossed and died, instead of receiving the very wrath of God, he was welcomed into God's presence as one of his own. A story of, of an evil of all evil, a story of unthinkable awfulness, a story of this horrible guy, this, this, this bad human being suddenly becoming a good guy. It really is the model of the Grinch, isn't it? And you see, he sees those little who's still celebrating Christmas even after he went and stole everything. And it says his heart grew. His heart, and in fact, the, the cartoon, it says his heart tripled in size and it burst right out of his chest. I saw it, so it must have happened. And the Grinch's response to seeing these people celebrating Christmas for the right reasons and not the superficial reasons was he brought back the toys, he brought back the food and the feast. He, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. As crazy as it is, redemption, repentance, motivated by an understanding of what things are most important. But for Manasseh, what led him to this change of heart? What, what motivated his redemption? What motivated his repentance. And, and I think I want to make sure you hear this because I believe this is the point of the story of King Manasseh. The thing that motivated his repentance 
was the pursuit of God. God gave him a chance, but verse 10 says he wouldn't listen. So God then steps up the pressure. And I think most of us looking at Manasseh and his life would have written him off. But the patience of God, 2 Peter 3 talks about it. The patience of God is there because God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God pursues patiently. In fact, though, that, that patient, we got to understand, it's not going to endure forever. God will not remain patient forever. That passage in 2 Peter 3 continues and says that one day his patience will be up and, and, and like a thief breaks in and steals your belongings and you're unaware and you're not expecting it and you could never have predicted it, that's the moment when God's patience is done. But in the meantime, as long as you have breath in your lungs, God is giving you opportunity as he pursues you for Manasseh, the pursuit looked like hardship and difficulty and being conquered and crisis and, and conflict and pain. Because let's, let's be honest, for some of us, it takes difficulty to bring us to the place where we're willing to allow God to catch us. I don't want to leave this story with you thinking the story is about Manasseh, this horrible king who became a good king and his people lived happily ever after. I want you to leave this story knowing that this story is about God's pursuit. The fact that God chased Manasseh down when God should have stopped. But that's the way God is, isn't it? <laughs> From the very beginning of the Bible, we see this. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, you, you have this, this moment when Adam and Eve and all of humanity decide that they know what's better for them than the one who created them. And so they rebel against their creator and the universe ever since that moment has been broken. And in that very moment, they're like, forget you creator, I think I'd be better at this myself. God's response is a stunning one. When they rebelled against God and the relationships, I mean, they just ruptured. Both, both vertically and horizontally, all relationships ruptured in that moment when they rebelled against God. And they know they've rebelled against God. And then they hear the unthinkable. Where are you? And they hide. And then there's this crazy moment where we understand and we come to grips with, oh yeah, God's walking through the garden. Where are you? <laughs> when does God have to ask about anything? And how in the world do Adam and Eve think they're actually hiding from God? I mean, that's worse than a three-year-old sticking behind the curtain, giggling the whole time with his feet hanging out like, you can't find me. Pretty sure you're right there. Game over. But Adam and Eve, who, who know God, who've walked with God, who are in the middle of God's perfect creation, after, after making that rebellious choice, realize something they had not realized before. They are naked. Now, it, it isn't just a physical nakedness. It brings with it this level of shame and this level of guilt, which every single one of us have experienced when we've sinned. Haven't you? You sin and immediately it's like, no, what have I done? Oh man, oh man. Now what do I do? What, what, what are we supposed to do? Quick, get some leaves. They jump into the bushes when they hear God coming. 
when God's creation rebelled against their creator. He came to the garden. He said, where are you? And it's so important you hear that right. He didn't come kicking the door down to the garden and be like, where are you? I know what you did. You think you can hide from me? Get over here, kids. No, you don't don't hear that. Father shows up and says, hey, where are you? Oh, we heard you. We were afraid. We're naked. We felt guilt and shame, and so we hid. Who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? Yeah. We did. Okay, well, what comes next? Does he say, go out and get a switch? Uh, all right, let me, um, let me make some clothes for you. Those leaves aren't going to cut it. What? They just rebelled against the very one who created them. They just spit in his face and did the one thing he commanded them not to do. And he doesn't come in like a holy terror swinging. He comes in and meets them where they are to deal with the result of their sin, which is guilt and shame. And that sets the tone for how God pursues us. He chases us, regardless of our rebellion. He keeps coming toward us with a, with a patient pursuit. You, you look at the, the book of Exodus, even though the people are just grotesque in their rebellion against God, how much do they complain, how quickly they forget everything that God has laid out for them, everything that God has done for them, and yet God continues to come toward them. It's the period of the judges where God could have very easily just been like, that's it, I'm done. I can't believe you did this again. Because you read through Judges and it's the cycle that just keeps going and going and going. We sinned. We get punished. We feel sorry. We cry out to God. He delivers us with a Redeemer. We sin. We get punished. We cry out to God. I mean, it's this cycle that continues and God could have just been, enough! And yet God continues to pursue them. It's the picture of the message of every prophet when they tell us over and over and over and over and over and over, people, would you wake up? God longs to be with you. He pursues them. Here towards Manasseh, as horrible as he was, God pursued him. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because we see it absolutely most wondrously, most beautifully, most amazingly when there is a declaration from the mouth of an angel shouting for everybody to hear, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The ultimate in God's pursuit. God showed up for you. 
Please, please understand this. I think too often we think God's pursuing me. I need to run. He's going to whoop me. God's pursuing you not to whoop you. God's pursuing you to love you. I, I love the fact that when God showed up, it wasn't just to declare that you are a screw-up. When God showed up, it wasn't for him to be like, you're, you're lost and you're a helpless heathen and you are going to be torched for the rest of eternity in the lake of fire. That is not the message of Jesus Christ when he came. We already sang the message of Jesus Christ. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin, to bear my shame. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And you may not be worshiping the stars. You might not be building idols in your backyard. You may not have set up a false altar in our lobby. But every single one of us is lost, and every single one of us at our core is trying to push God off his throne so we can take his seat. But that's who Jesus came to save. That's who Jesus is pursuing. Manasseh was, was a messed up human being, but so are you. And you don't have a, a chapter in the Bible dedicated to your mess. But what we need to remember today, and thank God for today, that the mission of God wasn't to destroy us, but to save us, to free us, and to rescue us. God's pursuing you. And that might mean that you're, you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have just been living a lie. You've just been being rebellious in and of yourself. You have turned your back on him. God is pursuing you. He doesn't want to whoop you. Wants to clothe you. And maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Man, let me tell you this right now. If God's not pursuing me. I'm sorry. Are you sitting here? He got you here. Joke's on you. God's pursuing you. God's pursuing you. God's pursuing you. He's not wanting any to perish, but everyone to taste eternal life. Would you let him catch you? Would you yield? All you need is to cry out from your heart for Jesus to be yours. And he is. I still love this. We were a college ministry. It was a hard ministry. And finally we saw our first convert while we were doing a ministry on campus. And we were all excited. Somebody came to Christ. And we're like sitting down. We're like, well, what's your testimony? We want to hear all the ins and outs. And, and it was so funny because we're expecting this long, eloquent thing. And he's like, well, I just said yes, finally. Just say yes. Just say yes and allow the finished work of Christ on the cross bring you to peace with the eternal God who created you and loved you more than you'll ever know. Just say yes. Let's pray together. Father, um, so much that I could pray for right now and I have no idea what you would want to have happen. So what I'm going to do, Lord, is just hand it to you. And Lord, I'm going to ask that if there is somebody sitting here who's not a follower of Christ, that they would understand that becoming a follower of Christ isn't raising a hand. It's not standing up and running down an aisle. It is crying out from their heart, yes. 
So Lord, if there's somebody here with us who doesn't know Christ, I pray that they would, they would cry out from their heart, yes, and then afterwards they would just find one of us to tell us so that we can encourage them, we can walk alongside them, we can help provide them some resources so that they know what in the world this is all about. God, I pray today would be the day someone crosses from death to life. And then for those of us in Christ who we've just been running from you, God, help us to stop and remember that your grace for us, as unexpected and unending as it is, that we need to wash in it. So Lord, let us know how to do that this morning. May we respond as your spirit leads us. Amen.